Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Mr. Bell, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Uh, it's nice to see it's nice to see you again. I wanted to talk to you about a couple of things. Is obviously health is a subject that is on everybody's mind. And I think it's kind of where we were at in the beginning of this whole thing when it came to like diet trends. Uh, quick ways to lose weight. If you take a magic pill, you can burn a bunch of fat. We have no clue what is going on. Uh, I think that's across the board. I think the message has been lost. And as a younger generation, uh, my generation seems to not care as much and seems to be kind of going on the fringe. I guess that's with every young generation. But do you think the public is as lost as it was when we before even the pandemic, before all this happened? Or do you think now they see more clearly of how these institutions run? I hope they see more clearly. Um, you know, within the medical professions, I think a lot of people have seen things differently as well. The, you know, I, I was always aware there is probably too much influence of pharma, and I'm aware of theoretical conflicts of interest and that sort of thing. I think things have changed too. So we used to worry more about that. I work in international public health, for instance, and you know, 20 years ago, it was a big deal to have. If you were in the World Health Organization, you wanted to talk to a private company. It was a big deal to do that. There was um, a lot of barriers to talking straight because of conflicts of interest concerns. Now we see, you know, a large, uh, perhaps 25% of the WHO's budget comes from private interests. So, you know, rather than talking to them, you're actually doing their work. Um, uh, I think the same is, you know, in clinical medicine, it's much the same in the US. I haven't worked clinically in the US, as we are saying before, but it is very strongly influenced by what the um, the large clinical networks, hospital um, networks, et cetera, and the um, insurers who are connected with that um, wanted to do. And, they, you know, they're connected in turn with pharmaceutical companies. So... I think you know there there's a time, and I think we still have a a belief that doctor you know medicine is a bit of an art, and the doctor patient relationship is the key. Whereas now, I think very much it is based on it's doctors are people who follow guidelines created by others and implement other people's policies. And I think a lot of people are seeing it that way, and a lot of doctors are starting to recognize that's how they're working. yeah. During COVID, it was really clear where we even had, you know, government saying you cannot give certain drugs, even though they're um, remarkably safe. Um, but you must give, you know, in fact, you must be vaccinated even to work um, against COVID, et cetera. And irrespective of immunity, irrespective of all the caveats, which we were taught once are important in deciding whether you have a medication or a vaccine or something. So it, it's really become, you know, it's dictated by others um, for whatever reason, probably mainly finance. There's a lot of money being made in this. And it's really become a, a for-profit industry rather than, you know, the art of medicine as we would like it to be, I think. Why are you a whistleblower if you talk about things that aren't related to the pandemic? But if you draw any lines to the pandemic, people call you a conspiracy theorist. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I had this law professor on. He's originally from Haiti. His name is Reginald Mumbrin. And he wrote a paper that I just I had to ask questions about, which was about big pharma and how we can retake the institution of health. 
Um, and he was literally just pointing out statistics and everything he was saying. I was like, you can't say that on YouTube. You can't, you can't say that. You can't. He said, why? And I was like, cause it's conspiracies. Like it's not a fucking conspiracy. These are real. And it, to me, I just laughed. Cause I was like, yeah, it's what a lot of people have been saying for a very long time. But even the numbers he pulled up, I made clips about it and put it on my YouTube. That, that's not going to trend. Obviously it gets like a view when some of my clips get thousands but he, I literally just point out the statistics of what he said. Most of the funders in Congress of all these people that pass bills and legislature are being funded. And he rattled off the statistic off the top of his head. And I showed the graph to where he can back that up. It's statistically accurate. They don't care about their people. They care about in their profit incentivizer. And that is a quote from one of the heads of Congress where our duty is not to the people. Our duty is to our advisors. That's that, that was on national television. But again, like I said, does it come from an institutional thing? It's not a United States thing. But why can I question the pharmaceutical industry as a whole? But I can't question the pandemic. That's strange. It is strange, and I'm certainly not a whistleblower. I, I just, um, like you were saying, we, you know, some just talk about facts. Um, you know, we were taught in medicine and in public health that you know, the patient's priorities, in the end, the patient's decision is paramount, that um, people have a, you know, all people equal, they have a right to make their own decisions. We're here to advise them. Um, we should be happy with that. So the, the idea of coercing people, which is absolutely what we saw through the pandemic, the idea that um, you know people are thrown out of their jobs and so on for not complying. Uh, I, I saw some, you know, uh, I've had friends who've been in terrible situations where two of them actually have had to be injected with a vaccine in one in order to travel, one in order to see a, a dying relative. And it wasn't about any immunity or anything. It was purely compliance you know you, you would see the relative as soon as you had the vaccine so that's compliance is not waiting for a vaccine to work so uh, i mean how how health staff have got to a point where they will implement those policies is interesting and because they know that they are wrong and i, I think it comes back to what you're saying you know, you have, in politics as well we have large we have a huge inequality it's grown a lot during COVID. The people who have gained are the people who were pushing the COVID response. And they have so much money that they can buy politicians, essentially. They can buy, they can buy or heavily influence the medical professions. They sponsor the medical associations. They sponsor the meetings that doctors go to. They are connected with the, um, the insurance companies that reimburse doctors. So you have a situation where even if you're a doctor trying to do the right thing, it's financially barely viable um, to follow what you think is correct procedure rather than what very large money is telling you to do. I don't know if it was the pandemic that kind of took it for me, but I never really watched TV a whole lot. But when I watched it recently, I saw six pharmaceutical ads and one M&M's commercial. That was actually pretty funny. But the six pharmaceutical ads were the ones where I go, is that real? Like, did, did I thought I was just like, it was my paranoia or I don't know. But I saw them like three, 
and then it was an M&M's commercial, then it was three pharmaceutical ads, then it was back to the show. And I go, did that just happen? And I had to look up the statistic. It's 80%, around roughly 77 point, and then there's a couple digits after that, but it's around that and 80% of advertisements on television networks are pharmaceutical ads. And I don't think a lot of people know that. And I didn't know if it just got worse because I don't remember that as much as when I was a kid. But it seems like it's just been growing and growing and growing. And you would think with the pandemic, people would be more aware. But I think people are just focused on it's always the vaccine. Well, there's other things out there as well, too, that are clear evidence that there's a giant encroachment into our lives from pharmaceutical companies, marketing. Even when you go to your doctor's office and the person pulls out a luggage thing and starts selling pills and tossing out hats and brochures. Yeah, they're the, the largest funder of media, um, sponsor of media. They're the, you know, in the UK and the US. Um, yeah, obviously they're, they're funding, you know, politicians need money to be reelected. So they're very much beholden to those that give them their war chest campaign. The, you know, we saw the American Open was sponsored by Moderna, which, you know, ironically, Djokovic won. Which is sort of nice. So, yeah, it's um, you know, this has happened. This has taken over. It's as you say, it's not a conspiracy theory. I mean, it, the conspiracy to me is that these huge companies with these huge advertising budgets are just doing all this purely out of altruism, and they're not trying to influence society in order to sell their product. I mean, why on earth do you advertise if that is not the intent? So you're not trying to get people well. If you're trying to get people well, you would talk about, you know, general fitness, um, basics up in vitamin D, et cetera. I mean, you know, this is not out there. This is just basic. Um, you, you eat well, you get plenty of sun, you get plenty of exercise. And that's not what they're advertising. They're advertising a particular product. Um, and they have a, these companies have a history of the largest fraud, you know, being found guilty of the largest fraud cases in history repeatedly. And not, you know, not just Pfizer, not just Merck. It's across the, you know, not just J&J. &J. It's across the spectrum. So the, the companies with a track record of fraud they are the big, biggest funders of advertising. They're sponsoring sporting events. They're sponsoring politicians. They're sponsoring medical conferences. And yet, you know, if you think that that is, there's not something wrong with that, that they're not doing that in order to have an undue influence over um, the medical professions and what you are prescribed, then that is a conspiracy. Because the only reason business does that is to make money. That's what I don't understand is the why is that get labeled? A con Even when you're saying it, I'm like, I 100% agree, but it just sounds conspiratorial, which I'm like, am I, I, I don't know. It's it's just profit. Everyone, you make a product, you want it to sell well. You don't want it to fail. You want it to be this big thing. So what do you do? You advertise for it. You become friends with the media moguls. You become friends with politicians who can push that. You become friends with doctors who can prescribe it. Make sure that it goes up and in the market. You become friends with the regulatory agencies who can facilitate its rapid entry to the market. And somehow that is not conspiracy at all. That's just, it's good business. 
but somehow when you talk about it, it's labeled a conspiracy. And that's probably, I mean, out of this whole pandemic, there's been not only confusion in health throughout history, but there's just been this indifference to trying to believe in severe corruption. And it's getting labeled now as a conspiracy. And I know you come across it way more than I do because you're involved in those health circles. Yeah, and I, I think this is just, I mean, this is what they paid for in the end. You, you you know, if you want to sell your product, something like this, especially in health, you know that there'll be detractors who will say there are other ways, you know, there are other priorities in health. Yeah, medicines work, vaccines can work, but there are much bigger priorities. This is not how we improved our life expectancy over the last 150 years primarily. So... You know, you will pay the media and so on to push the idea that, you know, conspiracy theorists or to push the idea, you know, ex-denier or these other sort of um, denigrating terms that are thrown on anyone that questions their narrative. And this is part of the advertising that you would put in place. This is a business strategy. So you know that people will say that the COVID vaccine doesn't make sense for you know, young adults and children who are almost zero risk from dying from COVID. But, you know, there are significant risks theoretical and demonstrated with mRNA vaccines. So you know there's going to be pushback. You know that that will harm your sales. So you do the groundwork and you get terms like conspiracy theory, vaccine denier, anti-vaxxer sort of in the consciousness of society so that you can pull those triggers. and. You know, it, it not so much now, but certainly early in the COVID response. And I, I thought that the COVID response was wrong from the very beginning, you know, because of my training and background. But I would still be triggered when someone says anti-vaxxer. It, to me, it, it makes me think, you know, someone who doesn't think viruses exist or someone who doesn't, you know, thinks the earth is flat or whatever. I mean, we've been trained through the media, which is sponsored by these pharmaceutical companies for a couple of decades or more to be triggered by these um, labels. And, and I, I think that this is to a large extent deliberate. We see it around climate and so on as well. And if, you, if you're pushing a narrative that is, you know, is the evidence is pretty shaky, but you want to make hundreds of billions of dollars out of it, which we've just seen in COVID, then you have to have another strategy rather than just relying on the truth. And the most effective way of that is one is promote you know, undue fear so people can't think straight, but the other one is to denigrate anyone who is likely to come out and speak against you. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the first thing you mentioned, which was this idea of fear. What was increased during the pandemic was fear for a lot of people. But in your mind, what are some clear-cut examples you would just recommend to people to look at of giant fear-enticing moments the government did? Made it seem like everybody even like you're going to kill grandma if you went outside. And I think we learned now that that was not true. And I think once you hear one thing, doesn't mean that you don't have to disbelieve them on everything. But when they come out and make a statement like the vaccine has no adverse effects – how do you know that nothing in this world has, you know, a hundred percent never does anything wrong even water can kill you if you drink too much, but to make a claim like that and it not be contested. 
You know, that that to me, coming from a pillar of health, I mean, some people might have contested, but I they're not the mainstream. A lot of the public went with like, oh, it has no adverse effects. But when they tell you you'll never get a side effect or this thing will help you prevent COVID and then you can still get COVID. So then what's the point of taking it? And then you have to manipulate all the wording of vaccine and all this type of stuff that ended up coming later down the line. Is there not a moment where I can't trust you? Like, is there not a moment I can't just say you're full of shit? Like, th to me, that's where, you know, I think about things. And I think going back to what I originally asked you about, which was the fear narrative. What in your mind was a clear cut couple examples you could toss out for the fear narrative? Yeah, one is, as you said, the idea that children will harm their grandparents. And, you know, there, there was studies very early in the vaccine, it's very early in COVID response, sorry, in 2020, showing clearly that teachers were not at increased risk in schools. So we knew that children were not significant spreaders to adults. Uh, in Sweden, they actually had a slightly reduced risk where the school stayed open. Um, we showed very early that children have, you know, for a number of reasons, including uh, they have less ACE uh, receptors on their cells, et cetera, in the respiratory tract, they have lower viral loads, so they will cough out less virus than an adult. So actually, you're better off being infected by a child than an adult. Well, we knew all this. Um, this is pretty normal in, in you know, disease, but we also showed it specifically for COVID. So we knew very early that children were not a significant risk to adults. Yet we had this, and we knew very early that young adults and healthy adults, you know, middle-aged adults were not dying of COVID, except in rare circumstances. And this came out of China. It was published in March 2020. So the whole narrative that everyone was at risk, at significant risk, was wrong. And that was pure fear. And the governments knew this. They knew that it was in China, it was almost exclusively old people who were dying of COVID. So they knew that and they said everyone was at risk. Um, you know, we have the WHO and governments and so on saying, um, I'm trying to remember the slogan, sorry, for, for COVAX. Um, no one is safe until everyone is safe. Sorry. Which is trying to say that, um, I mean, it's a stupid slogan, but it's trying to say that everyone has to be vaccinated before the world is safe. And that, that's, it, it's, that's going further because this is pushing, firstly, it's a, it's a ridiculous thing because, it, I mean, it's actually telling you the vaccine doesn't work because it's saying if, even if you're vaccinated, someone else has to be vaccinated for you to be safe. So what sort of vaccine is that? But Secondly, it's pushing this fear from fear of death onto fear of other people will infect you. And this is the whole point of that. So it's trying to whip up this idea that, um, you know, like pandemic of the unvaccinated, as we heard a lot as well, that those who are not complying are the ones to be feared. And that's it's taking it a step further from saying you're you're at risk yourself, you know, from a disease. It's saying you're at risk from other people. This is, you know, the sort of 1930s idea that we saw in Germany, that you, you whip up a a fear and um, you know 
anger against a small subsection of the population to um, try to push a certain narrative that you're getting across. What I mean, it's interesting the labeling of vaccinated and unvaccinated that the, it it created division amongst people, and I, I I don't know why it came to that, but there was a lot of aggression that was brought out. I mean, did you? think people are acting mostly out of emotion rather than thinking logically about things. I mean, it's not an excuse now if people are still doubling down on it, but there's a lot of stuff that was not thought through properly, not just in the public health sphere, but more in the public. The public were not thinking about this rationally because of how scared they were. Yeah, I mean, you could have said um, the immune and the non-immune, which actually makes more sense. So we had even medical staff and doctors and so on saying unvaccinated versus vaccinated. Oh, this is stupid. What you're saying is someone's had an injection or someone hasn't. It's irrelevant. But if you're worried about, you know, what you're vaccinating for, you're interested in who is immune, who is not immune. And we knew very early on again that you know, early 2021 that natural immunity, the actual virus, and this is what we would expect if Fauci's even written saying this is inevitable, natural immunity is more effective than an injection with mRNA or with a single protein. And that's obvious and it's it's normal. So firstly, there was, you know, those who had been infected and recovered, nearly everyone who's infected, were less likely to need medical service in the future and less likely to harm others by spreading a virus than those who are vaccinated only. So, you know, it, it, when you have medical staff repeating that vaccinated versus unvaccinated, they're throwing away all their knowledge and they're just adopting this slogan. So why would they do that? I, I actually don't know. I think um, it's... Uh, it's interesting psychology, isn't it? But what, why do we adopt a sort of groupthink that we know is against logic and uh, against the truth and which involves denigrating other people and scapegoating people, even if we know that, you know, that's a completely false narrative? Most people seem to have the capacity to do that. I don't know why. But um, Do you think people actually believe like the ones that still believe getting the shot and that you're putting people at risk when you don't have the shot. Like, I'm sure you come across it on Twitter or whatever it's called now, but sometimes I, I, I hear people still spouting stuff where I'm just like, you know, that's not tr like, I'm not trying to be like the guy who took the red pill or whatever, but you, I'm pretty sure they've, they've changed the whole, their whole thinking on that now. Like you're kind of running off of like the beginning of the pandemic where it was like, there's people that still wipe down surfaces and six foot rule and do things like that. where two masks. It's like the message, like they turned off the TV when <laughs> the statement was changed or something like that. Like they just still stick in this, but they, dig their toes in and i've heard people mention that it's because they don't want to be the one that was like oh i got duped or i did this and did that i'm sure there's some of that but i it, for me it's like there's just some people that are refusing to i mean it's not a shame to look up onto google and be like hey doc i saw this 
you know, this is a, I have a question about this. That's not a bad thing. It's why we have these devices. But also when you Google these things, you're not getting exactly the studies that you might be wanting to look for. I mean, what no, pharmaceutical you're getting Google's algorithms. Yeah. What what pharmaceutical company is looking at the studies of the ones that are causing adverse effects in their product? No, they're only going to want to want the ones that fit their product and how good it is. Well, and you only get those studies essentially uh, to those because the, the study, studies are expensive and they're they're sponsored by government agencies or pharma by and large. So yeah, that's why we see studies of a certain direction and not others. I mean, if people think, why don't they do a study on X? It's because no one stands to gain from it. So they're not going to sponsor it. So, so yeah, it's hard to know what belief is, isn't it? When you look at what's happening in COVID, um, <clears throat> how much of belief is just, our brains seeing what's out there and rationally processing that and saying well you know xyz is out there so therefore that means we're at the end of the alphabet versus yeah what we what our ego and so on wants us to believe you know in order to maintain a certain um level of self-esteem or whatever so it is it's very hard as you're saying to admit that you are wrong and i i think subconsciously we can convince ourselves that we are right um without you know without a big effort to do that so we can still believe that we are right even when all the evidence is contrary because something in our brain is just doing that as a safety mechanism or something so uh, I think a lot of people still genuinely believe that COVID was an existential threat to everyone. They believe you know, that the vaccine saved 20 million people worldwide, which is a completely ludicrous thing to believe because not that many people even died in the first year when we had no vaccine. I mean, it's just completely logical for an outbreak. That they want to believe that the vaccine is completely safe. They want to believe it's great to give to pregnant women. And I don't think they're deliberately fooling themselves. I think they're just not capable, even subconsciously, of um, getting over this need to be right, this need to maintain your self-esteem, rather than admit that, you, as you said, you've been duped. I think it's because the fear of being called a conspiracy theorist. That's a lot of it, yeah. And and this was drummed into us, as I was saying, for I think a couple of decades, I think. It, it's the same around climate. I, yeah. you, you can, people are scared to say that CO2 has improved crop growth, improved plant growth. It absolutely has. And that's shown there's a 30, 40% increase in vegetation, vegetation growth because CO2 has increased. Um, you can say there's a bit, you know, that doesn't mean CO2 increase is good. It doesn't mean it's bad. It's just a fact. But people won't say that. They won't admit that. They won't admit that's one of the reasons why we can feed 8 billion people. Because to do that will put you in this climate denial or, you know. Which has nothing to do with it, the Earth's warming or not. You're just mentioning that plants use CO2 for life. 
Yeah, and if you're growing commercial greenhouses, you can pump CO2 in to improve your crop growth, and that's what happens. So uh, we we sort of put aside the idea of truth in order to just maintain this um, avoidance of having to face some sort of denigration or whatever from others. I think people have somehow in the first 15 seconds of a conversation with someone realized that they understand who this person is and where this conversation is going to go, whether it's an argument they had on Twitter or something of that sort. Like if you mentioned the CO2 thing about plants, they immediately call you a climate denier. It's not even a mention about the climate. It's just mentioning that plants use something. It's a fact. But people assume this is how this conversation is going to go. Now, that could be because some of the climate denialists use that as a quote to their arsenal, and that's what happened in an interaction with them. But have you, from your perspective, changed anything about maybe some things that you've learned through the pandemic? Necessarily, like for me, I think it the lockdowns, all the measures, I think they did prevent some COVID infections. But I don't think that the risk was really... I guess, worth what the things that we lost as well, too. I mean, COVID was a infection. It was something that was getting people sick and some people were having massive you know, impacts from it. I don't think it was the whole world that was experiencing this, but I think that with lockdowns and all this, I think it might've prevented some COVID deaths, but I think it also created domestic violence. I think it brought a lot of things that upticked where the CDC, if I'm not mistaken, came out and said that you can't do lockdowns because the lockdowns can't be worse than what the actual disease is. And then they blamed it on their governors and said it was all the governors when it was the CDC originally that said do lockdowns and push lockdowns. But then they just blamed it on your governors and left it up for the states to decide how they wanted to keep people in lockdowns or let them go back to work and bring the economy back. But there was a lot of things that were unintended consequences from the measures that were put into place. And I think throughout this, there's not a conversation being had about it. Yeah. They were unintended in a sense, but they were also known to be inevitable. So, yeah, lockdown, you know, if you confine people to their homes, you will probably slow the transmission of a virus. And that could save some people, although you could argue that eventually everyone's going to get that first infection anyway. The first infection is probably the worst one because you have the lowest immunity so that's when you're most likely to die. It's going to come one way or another. Um, so, but yeah, it's certainly a way of slowing transmission from one person to another. As you said, we the reason why WHO in two, late 2019 said never do that under any circumstances for flu is because, yeah, it might do that, but it, it'll be a temporary, you know, a slight reduction. And it will cause increase in poverty. It will cause interruption of supply lines. It'll, um, particularly for low-income people, it'll have arms that far outweigh the benefits. And poverty is very directly related to health. So you make people poorer, you make countries poorer, you have more infants dying, you have more, you know, people have shorter lifespans. And, and this is known, it's pretty straightforward. So we knew when we 
push lockdowns even for two, when lockdowns were pushed for two or three weeks, so that would have some negative consequences. Doing that for you know months, year or more is you know, we knew we know that that have dire consequences for the economy, for people's health. We're now seeing cancer rates go up. You know, some people are arguing that's due to properties of the vaccine, which is quite feasible as well. Um, but it's also due to, you know, in the UK, for instance, they stopped something like 40% of chemotherapy. Of course, you kill more people from cancer. If you tell people that they, they shouldn't go to the clinic and less are just about dying because of COVID, then you'll have people having chest pain that don't turn up until too late and they'll die of heart attacks. This is pretty straightforward. But also, if you close schools and um, both in high and low income countries, then you reduce the chance of children when they grow up having an income that will improve their health. You, you reduce the chance of families getting out of poverty in the future. So you're locking in poverty and poorer health for a generation or two. And this is absolutely known. In, this is orthodox public health thinking. It's not nothing new. The WHO wrote about it before COVID. So they absolutely knew that this is what they were doing. Do you think some of the actions from the people in the health system, not saying all of them, but some of the people is because maybe they didn't have faith in our body's ability to you know, take care of this virus on its own? I mean, it's really hard. to. I know the corruption aspect is a good answer to that, but I also think that the, a lot of scary statistics have been thrown out through over the years about obesity rates and cardiovascular disease and how unfit we are as a country where it's everyone hopped on board of getting a shot if they thought it wasn't going to get them sick because I, I think a lot of people know that their body's in crap condition, yet you don't expect a politician to say anything like that because they only care about re-election. Yeah, I I don't think that's a justification for it because they if if you really felt that then you would push you know everyone in aged care facilities should have been yeah you, know, you, you would ensure they had normal vitamin D levels or healthy vitamin D levels you give vitamin D supplements K two supplements magnesium yeah we banned it we banned it you vitamin A use those. Yeah, it became a controversial subject whether we should give vitamin D or not, and this is basic for T cells to function in order to fight viruses. I mean, you know, the, there's an article in Nature earlier this year, I think, or last year, that showed, you know, suggests that up to a third of deaths may have been averted if people had, had healthy vitamin D levels. So the, this is a, a chronic problem in our society. Obesity is a chronic problem. We closed gyms and told everyone to stay home. And we've seen an increase in obesity in children and in adults um, accelerate through the pandemic. So. It's um, you know, if you thought that, and it's quite correct that um, we are particularly unhealthy society now and more at risk of um, death from viruses and respiratory viruses. It's true. Then you would do something about that. You you would address that quickly rather than telling everyone to stay at home, stay out of the sun, knowing that that is actually going to make this condition worse. But that's what we did. So I I don't think this, the response had anything to do with fear that we were more at risk. Um, if you were interested in pandemic preparedness for the future, then this is where you would concentrate primarily, is improving people's 
innate resistance to viral infections. And that's pretty straightforward. But the pandemic preparedness that we go pushing now is nothing to do with that. It's all about you know, a hundred day vaccine, more mRNA vaccines, which channels money to the sponsors of that process, but is going to have you know, a fairly problematic impact on people's health. What's the group that suffered the most? I mean, out of the long-term effects of this thing, I mean, the people now that I think of an older generation, but then also everyone always brings up the kids and the younger generation. I mean, masks weren't just one example of what happened to kids being in lockdowns and all these protocols that we had during the pandemic. I think that the ones that suffered the most immediately are probably the elderly. And the the, the idea that you would lock up an 83-year-old in their room, in a nursing home, in an aged care facility, prevent them from seeing their family, prevent them from seeing their grandkids. To you know, to preserve what? What sort of life are you preserving for them? Rather than let them make these decisions themselves, these people had lived. You know, they'd been through wars, fighting for the country. They'd worked. They'd earned. They nurtured their children, and then they're stuck in a room like a prisoner for their last one or two, three years of life. I hear that there's nothing without without the right even to decide how they're going to live those last years. That's about the worst, most disrespectful thing that you could do to an elderly person. But, but the other the others that I think have suffered the most are you know children, particularly in low-income countries. Um, but also, you know, children here like you know, children of colour and so on. And it's been shown in DC that the, this has increased the disparity between minority children who are in poverty and other children who are in families who are well-off. So if you close schools, you're allowing the well-off children, they'll have a screen each, they'll have a computer each, they'll have their own room each. And quite likely one of the parents will be home and they can sit there, do their online school, whatever. If you're a single mother with three children and in a small apartment struggling to pay the rent and you've got, you know, three children in one room, probably no computer, no screen, then clearly you're increasing the inequality between the wealthy children and the poorer children. If you take this in low-income countries, we had children who are up, lost up to two years of schooling so their chance in the future of you know getting out of poverty, getting their village out of poverty and so on is 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 shattered. The um we're seeing a increase, you know, UNICEF predict up to 10 million extra girls forced into child marriage. There's an increase in child labor, there's a, a big increase in child mortality through the lockdowns. So yeah, the, the, this is there was a rise of homeschools too, right? Like people started teaching their kids at home and decided not to put them back into public school, which I don't necessarily think is a bad idea because from what I've seen from friends of mine who are following that protocol, um, some find a balanced approach of doing public school some days and homeschool some days too. But deeper connection with their family is a good sign. But also I, I'm seeing them learn actual life skills and things to kind of be a little bit more successful than the basic education system kind of teaches. 
And I, I mean, like I said, there's an unintended consequence to that. If you're, you know, a kid who doesn't have a parent that can do that for you and you don't get free lunch at school, maybe that's the only time you eat. Those are unintended consequences, but you can still have the option to still go to public school. But it brings the question on which I messaged you about, which was about privatized medicine. I mean, I've seen a lot of doctors that are on Brownstone like yourself um, who have private practices who have been speaking out during this pandemic. And I wondered if that was even an option, if they didn't close and people could still go see their doctors who owned a private practice, would we have this conflicted results and messed up skew of the way health is? Yeah, so I'm not in private practice, as you know, but um, yeah, quite a few who are have lost their private practices. So I know doctors, clinical doctors who They've lost their rights in private hospitals. They've um, had medical boards cancel their certification to practice, their right to practice. And in all the cases I know, it's not due to any suggestion of actual causing harm. It's purely due to not conforming with dictates from some authority regarding what they can and can't prescribe so it's not uh, there's no suggestion of direct harm demonstrable harm being done so yeah there are, i mean it's it's actually pretty scary if you're a clinical doctor and you know we saw the legislation in california that eventually got squashed but it got through the legislature um and it was only it was only through court cases that it was stopped, basically saying that doctors have to obey the dictates of the government rather than addressing the issues of the patient that's in front of them in their context. So it's more authoritarian than the whole lockdown for three weeks. And if you leave your house, it's going to be a fine of five thousand dollars. It's trying to put that yeah. Yeah, it's trying to put what we saw in COVID as a, a permanent way of running society, running medical practice. Do you think when it comes to when we talk about resetting, I wouldn't say resetting, but really bringing it onto a direct course of where people can get correct information, what do you trust? Where do, where do you look at for articles? I mean, what information can you process? I mean, we I mentioned earlier about talking to someone 15 seconds at a conversation, you can kind of tell what maybe their political is or whatever their leaning is. But where do you get the information? Because I don't think you can trust any of these. I thought it was the overseas networks. Some of the articles, I mean, you can come across now some articles about adverse effects. I think that's now being looked into by, I think they had to acknowledge it. But there are some things that we're learning about now that had complete Pfizer funding or corruption or something was uh, no conflict of interest. That was obviously a clear violation. I don't trust anything completely, I think. Um, and I think that's a fairly healthy way to go. All people have um, various desires, various drives, which you know, we can't always predict. Uh, I, I think you have to look at data and not people's interpretation of data. We've seen uh, you know, papers during the COVID era that, for instance, would seem to say that masks aren't having any effect, for, as an example, and then it, it you know it finishes off as um, you know in the conclusion as therefore masks are effective and everyone should wear them. Where there's 
vaccine trials um, or vaccine papers that show significant adverse effects from vaccines and even show that the more boosters you have, the more COVID um, infections you get. And then they will conclude with vaccines are effective and should be used. So uh, yeah, part of that is playing a game to get these things published because the medical journals also are dependent on pharma money in the end and pharma sponsorship their businesses. So you have to go back and dig into the actual data. Um, you know, a good example is the, the Pfizer's, Pfizer's own trial for six months of their vaccine in the New England Journal of Medicine. If you read the um, actual article, it basically says the vaccine is effective in stopping people from dying of COVID. That's wonderful. If you read the supplementary data, then it shows that more people die who are vaccinated than in the control group who are not vaccinated. But you, you would not have picked that from the media. You would not have picked that from reading the paper itself. You have to dig into the supplementary data. So I think, you know, one thing that COVID should have taught us is that conflicts of interest are a real thing. They do influence people and journals and media that we used to think were uh, something we could trust. And you need to actually question everything and do your own research. And yeah, this was denigrated during COVID that we had everyone from stand-up comedians to newscasters saying how ridiculous it is that people do their own research. I mean, what they're saying is it's ridiculous that people think for themselves. And yeah, that's a pretty stupid thing to say. So uh, I think people have to have a degree of scepticism. You've got to look at both sides of an argument, listen to both sides, but You've also got to go back and look at the data if you can. It's pretty hard, you know, if it's not your field. But or you've just got to maintain a degree of scepticism if you haven't got time to do that, and um, keep an open mind that you know you may go along with one side, but you, you're not going to tie your life to it. Where have you found the most support, and where have you found the most resistance politically? I've noticed like conservatives and. People on the right tend to question more of the COVID company line. And I don't know why questioning if it came from a lab became a right-wing mentality where I'm like, I think Bill Maher even said the name of the fucking virus is the same name as the lab. Like, it's more racist to think it came from the wet market saying it came from some food that they ate. But we, like, turned off our brains and it just became a political ideology thing. If you believe that there was anything wrong with what Biden said, then you're a right-wing MAGA supporter. I'm like, I don't believe in politics at all. I think it's all kind of shit, but I can still question when looking at something and be like, hey, what he said is not true. And we know because that person got infected. So that means is everything he say a bit of a lie? And that would just be tossed out as your right-wing conspiracy theorist. I'm like, well, I'm going to start questioning. Yeah. I don't know where politics is now. This left-right thing. Um, yeah. I've always thought I'm on the left of politics. I actually believe in universal the idea of universal health care and that sort of thing. I still do. Um, but yeah, that they were left wing, left of center 
ideas, although you know not exclusively. But now we we have somehow that has been conflated with large pharmaceutical corporations run the show and you do whatever their CEO tells you. So yeah, the the idea of human rights for whatever reason was sort of seen as more a left wing thing than a right wing thing. But during COVID, we've seen basic human rights thrown out the window. And it's been the right side of politics in general that have stood up for them. Uh, yeah, but and, tech companies are left. I'm, I would say primarily more left. So it's like hard to find yeah, that information. Well, 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 that's why it's hard to know what is left, isn't it? You know, you, what you're saying is that large corporations run by extremely rich people that are the beneficiaries of the rapidly increasing equality over the last 20 or 30 years are left wing. And okay, whatever, then that's not the left wing that I always thought was left wing. I thought left wing was about equality. and um, Yeah, that's it's all shifted. It's not like I think that they call Bill Maher, which is he's a Democrat, old school Democrat, but they call him like a progressive, not a progressive. They call him a right wing now. And I'm like, he's like, no, he's like, you, you guys went completely like the opposite, like progressive way, which just became this monstrous, like woke version of it. Yeah. So so he's called right wing because he's questioning large corporations and he's questioning the very wealthy and the narratives that they're pushing. So that somehow is now a far right attitude. It's nuts to me. I mean, what's, I guess, the most shocking of where we're at now? I mean, do you see, I don't really see a whole lot of COVID articles anymore. I know not too long ago, a few months ago, there was a lot of talk about lockdowns happening again. But then I think that just phased out. And I think a lot more people have just gotten back to like, I don't care what you're going to say. I'm just going to keep on doing what I've been doing and build my life back. Well, I think so. I think, yeah, they, they tried to push masks a while ago. Um the CDC, the White House, et cetera. I, I flew th across the US just after all that came out and there's like 2% of people wearing masks on planes and in airports. So I think people have had enough of all that. But I, I think it's going to come back and it's probably going to be worse. Um, you know, in the background, we have these World Health Organization amendments and treaty being negotiated at the moment. And it's it's abstract to most people, especially in this country. But they're very real. The US is one of the strongest pushers of them. What they say in their own wording is that countries will undertake to do whatever an individual in Geneva, the Director General of the World Health Organization, tells them to do regarding their health care when that person, the Director General, decides that there's a threat, a global threat to, to health. So that, that's, that's clear. That's what they're negotiating. And it's... Um, Can they define threat? That would be really, really nice. I yeah, just so know. they don't. Um, of course they don't. Of course they don't. So, but even then, you know, if you have a threat of a complex health emergency, would you want to then give up the decision-making essentially to a group of bureaucrats in Geneva. Of course you wouldn't because your country has its context, it has its priorities. People have their basic rights to make their own decisions. So you would keep, you would be interested in learning and swapping information at the central level, but you would absolutely keep decision-making within your country and within your communities. So 
and uh, from a public health point of view, that is what you should do as well, because highly centralized responses are just the wrong way to manage a complex health emergency. So, you know, this is not about um, managing a future pandemic or managing health any more than obeying whatever a farmer's CEO says is the best way to manage, you know, to, to develop a vaccine policy. So it's, again, it's about money. It's about concentrating the ability to make more money and more wealth and control a narrative within, in this case, the sponsors of the WHO, which takes us back to a large extent to the same countries and the same corporations and individuals that ran the COVID response. Whatever happened to informed consent or just being in the driving seat of your own health? I mean, it's not that's not a bad thing to be in charge of the what you put in your body and asking questions about what goes into your body, but somehow that's been demonized. Like somehow we're uneducated. Doctors Google too. And I've seen a doctor do it while I was in his office. So I'm just saying that's not a bad thing to be, you know, I don't know, uh, not self-educated, but just asking reasonable questions about what you want to do with your life. Yeah, informed consent is absolutely essential. Um, it's the opposite is um, it's basically fascism or yeah, some other authoritarian way of it. It's the opposite of democracy and the opposite of the idea that individuals are sovereign. So um, if we, and we did throw out informed consent during COVID, absolutely, there is clear coercion, um, you know, which is easy, certainly against the spirit of the Nuremberg Declaration um, that was for an experiment. I mean, people argued legitimately that the vaccines were still an experiment because the trial wasn't finished. But um, yeah, we had coercion. We we didn't have informed consent. We deliberately withheld information on the animal trials, on the um, the Pfizer's own BioNTech trials of the vaccine, etc. You know, who who knew that more people died in the control group than the vaccinated? So more people died in the vaccinated group than the control group when they were being injected. Almost no one only people who would go and read supplementary data in a journal. So there was no informed consent. Um, so we, we threw out one of the very basic um, tenets of human rights and medicine during the COVID period. And, you know, if we don't retrieve that, we'll have a very different society. We'll also have a, a medical profession that basically the community just won't trust because they would know that um, they're not going to give us be given a straight story. What do you recommend to people that would be listening to this that are just looking for a reason? Because I, I, I like your approach. I think through our conversations that we've had, I really like, like, you know, my show is not really a structure to anything. It's kind of on the spot conversation, but I can get your thoughts on things. I mean, I've noticed a change in you from the first time we've talked. You seem like you've obviously been a little bit more experienced to how the public can be i think it's from the social platforms but i think you're also just trying to give people reasonable thinking processes which we should all naturally have but it seems like for so long we've let someone be in the steering position of 
medicine for a while and i think you've kind of noticed and seen much like a lot of people have seen is that it is severely corrupted so it's okay to ask questions it's okay to try and sort through answers but what would you recommend to people not even a recommendation but just get people to look at things a little bit differently i mean if you ask three questions and two of those questions are given the answer i don't know or just do what I say because I'm a doctor. That's not a very trustworthy relationship or a very trusting process for me. But, you know, trust the science was tossed out like a beach ball at a Nickelback concert. Yeah, it's pretty hard because if you're in a doctor-patient relationship, you know, most people haven't got the the time or background to really dig into studies and so on. So certainly you've got to ask your doctor why and you can't accept just because that's what the CDC says or that's what someone else says because in the end that's likely to be the company that's making the stuff speaking. It's quite reasonable to ask a doctor what they get out of it. Um, and I think people should ask that. So there are in interesting incentives, for instance, in from in the US from um, medical insurers that if a doctor gets a certain percentage of their clientele vaccinated with yeah, childhood vaccines, then they get a bonus uh, each year. So that's worth knowing because then you can figure out, well, it doesn't mean the vaccine's good or bad, but this doctor has an added incentive to make me have it. And being human, that's going to influence what they say. So I think understanding what drives the medical profession, understanding how they're remunerated is really important. Um, it, in other countries, uh, there is significant money made just by giving injections of COVID vaccination. So each time a doctor gave an injection, they got money um, above their normal practice or nurses the same, et cetera. So, you know, if someone's getting paid per injection that goes into your arm, then obviously they're going to struggle to keep a rational approach to whether you should have that injection or not. It's going to be heavily influenced by, you know, they want to resurface their tennis court or build a new swimming pool. So uh, I think people have to understand what the medical profession is, that it's not just people who are there for their good for some altruistic purpose. It's they're people who are trying to make money in a business that makes most of its money by having people take ingest tablets or be injected with a substance. And that's how the money moves in that profession now, in that industry. So it doesn't mean that medicine is all bad, obviously, but it means that it's going to be heavily influenced in the way it responds to someone who's ill. Do you recommend it just fades away, this whole COVID narrative story? Or do you think this is a clear example of what happens when people do not put their foot down, um, when obviously clear constitutional violations are being, you know, proceeded i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of talk now about it it just seems like i don't know when you visited that other country if they're talking to talking about covid on the street but a lot of people don't even acknowledge it anymore it's just faded away which is good but at the same time do we want that 
Yeah, I don't think we do. I think we've got to recognise what happened because it, the intent is for it to happen again. The companies that ran the COVID response, they made hundreds of billions of dollars out of it. A significant part of that is being pushed into ensuring that this can be done again. And why wouldn't you if you know, that's what drives your life? So I think people have got to be very aware of what happened and decide that they're not going to go along with obvious removals of freedom, removals of their bodily autonomy and so on in the future. And they, they've they got to get themselves in a mindset so they can see it coming. I think that probably happened a little bit. It's happening a little bit with, you know, as we're saying, the push to wear masks a few months ago in the US and the latest booster where a tiny proportion of the population really have taken. So I think people are seeing that, but they've, they've got to realize that it's not just going to be COVID. This is going to be, a, this is a much broader problem. And uh, David, where can people find your links? I know you got your Twitter, but you don't have a sub stack. How do you not have a sub stack? I actually have one with nothing on it. Uh, I, uh, I, I got one in case I was canceled off Twitter, but then Twitter changed. Um, <laughs> for the yeah. good, for the good. So, so I, I put... I write mostly for Brownstone, um, brownstone.org. Um, so I, I try to put stuff on that. I would, yeah, I've actually thought of compiling stuff on the Substack, but they're, they're, honestly, there are, I don't know, there are so many Substacks out there and people are... Join the mix, man. What are you talking about? People are struggling to... Yeah, there's so much information. I, I think putting it on sites that have a mix of ideas is in some ways healthier um because people you know they're going to read your stuff they're also going to read other contrary opinions or different takes on the same subject which is probably good for us but anyway i'm on brownstone i'm on twitter i'll link all your links in the description david seriously it's been a pleasure chatting with you again thanks everybody for listening to this episode of out of the blank stay tuned for our next episode